Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I rep kids' books from picture books through young adult. Each episode, I get together with my publishing friends, and we dish the dirt about an aspect of the publishing industry. Today, we're going to talk about revision, among other things, and I'm so pleased to introduce my guest. She's a children's book industry veteran. She went from being an intern at Viking all the way to vice president and publisher of Athenaeum. And when we talk about publisher of a publisher, that's actually a job title, not just a place. And guess what? Publisher is about as high up as you can get at a publisher. Some years and many hundreds of exceptional and award-winning books later, now Emma Dryden is a publishing and editorial consultant with her own firm, Dryden Books, as well as being a poet, a painter, and an author to boot. Let me see if I can get Emma on the line. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jen. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's get right into it. All right. You started Dryden Books about nine years ago, right? I did uh, in 2010. Yes. So you are a publishing consultant. Can you explain mm-hmm. what that actually is? Sure. Um, Essentially, as you probably know, but uh, a lot of your listeners may not, I was an editor and publisher at Simon & Schuster for nearly 20 years. And so uh, once I was laid off and left that company, I needed to figure out, well, what had I just lost, but what did I still have? And what I had was my editing abilities and expertise And I also had what I thought was a very good sense of children's publishing and just all the different facets of it. Having been in it for such a long time, I knew a lot about it. And so uh, as I established my own company called Dryden Books, I offered my services as an editorial consultant, but I also offered services as a publishing consultant. And what that entails, or at least this publishing consultancy part of it, is that um, I talk with editors and artists and even agents um, about different aspects of publishing. Sometimes I'll talk with an art author about um, how to query agents and what to consider when they're querying agents. I will talk to um, an author or illustrator about their whole career path and really do Mm. sort of career counseling almost, um, all within the sort of confines of understanding the children's publishing industry in ways that I understand it. So I consult editorially, really getting deep and down into the editing of a manuscript. But I also talk with people about careers, um, agents, uh, best practices, speaking, all those kinds of pieces of uh, publishing. So you're a guru is what you're saying. Well, thank you. I'll take that from you. (laughs) Sure. I'm trying to be useful and relevant is what I'm doing, Jen. So Uh, what do you like about having your own business? Are are there differences in how you work now that you've hung out your own shingle and you're not, you know, working for the man anymore? Yep. Yep. There are. Um, I kind of love it, I have to say. And uh, I mean, one of the huge differences is that I am my own boss. Um, That is great now. When I first started out with my own company, 
that was a learning curve. Um, I had to sort of pay myself, come up with my own worth and value, uh, figure out just who I was and, and how I wanted to put myself out there. But, and, and I had to figure out how to establish an LLC and all of these sort of concrete things that I had never had to do before. But I love being in charge of myself, of my day-to-day activities. Um, I am more open now to all sorts of different projects than I was working for one company. Um, I also really enjoy having a broader view of the publishing industry. I have Mm -hmm. stayed in touch with a lot of agents like you and a lot of editors, a lot of authors. And so I have kind of gained knowledge about what's going on in different houses, what's going on at different agencies. And so sort of having that broader perspective is really fun and really exciting. And uh, so I think... um, you know, I was warned when I got laid off that it would be a blessing, but I wouldn't know it for a long time. And I think that's exactly true. Um, I don't know that I would ever go back now into a corporate structure. I don't know that I could, mm. but I really enjoy uh, sort of being in, in control of, of things and also being open to new things. That's That's been a lot of fun. Right. A lot of people ask me about whether they should hire a freelance editor, you know, authors want help and, but those services can be quite expensive. So for whom do you think such a service is most useful? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I will, I have a submission policy and I do often get submissions from authors who actually are not ready to work with a freelance editor like myself. Um, And what I mean by that is that um, I do think because of the expense and because of the intensity of the feedback that someone is going to get from me, uh, there are steps that authors, I think, should be taking in their craft and in their writing that doesn't mean they should be jumping into work with a freelance editor immediately, but there are other sort of avenues they should be doing first before they're ready for an editor. Um, Mm -hmm. That being said, I would say that most of my clients are people who have been rejected by agents or editors and don't fully understand why or don't know how to make their work stronger or better. They've had a little bit of feedback here and there. They've taken their work through several drafts, but now they really want and need a professional set of eyes and a professional quality critique. And they're not getting that from agents or editors. So that's often when people will come to me. So they have some understanding of the process of writing and also of submitting, um, but they're ready now to get a very intensive uh, deep dive critique and to be willing to then revise accordingly. So I also uh, do work with clients who sometimes come from agents where an agent may recommend that their author 
work with a um, editor like myself to deepen a certain manuscript, to get it kind of in a position that maybe the agent feels would be stronger before they go out on submission with it. And so I do have Mm -hmm. a, a few of those projects, which I appreciate. When do you think in the in the process is the best mm. time to hire someone like you after the first complete draft, after several rounds of revision? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, honestly, I like to think that authors will have tried to at least take their work through several drafts and complete drafts. Um, I do sort of what I call holistic editing. I tend not to work with an author just on a first chapter or just or if the author hasn't completed their work, I will usually push back and say, I don't want to actually consider this until you've completed at least one draft and ideally taken it to another draft. Um, I want an author to have a strong sense themselves of the whole picture of their manuscript, really how it starts and how it ends and how all of that links together. Um, That, for me, is a more comfortable place for me to jump in. And I, it also gives me confidence that the author who has completed a complete project will be ready then to start tackling revisions of that project. So what should a writer expect from you? Uh, let's see. So I, as I say, I have a submission policy. I don't take on everything that gets submitted to me. I, I do reserve the right to say no if I don't think a project is viable or honestly, if I'm not sharing an author's vision or enthusiasm That's for fair. the project. I don't think right. it's fair um, to the author for me to say, sure, I can edit anything. I mean, that may be true, <laughs> but there's not a reason mm-hmm. for me to edit everything. Um, there are a lot of excellent smart uh, children's book editors out there in a freelance or consulting capacity, and it has to be the right match. Um, So once we're agreed, I uh, issue, because of my corporate background, I have this submission policy, I issue a a one-page contract that we both sign, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, I normally read through the work Um, I make notes all over it for myself. I usually turn those into some track changes or into a pretty intensive memo that can often run, you know, 10, 20 pages sometimes um, of feedback, of feedback Mm -hmm. uh, related to every aspect of that manuscript that I think we need to talk about. Good and not so good. You know, what's working, what's not working, what's strong, what's weak, etc. I really try to deliver as full a assessment as I possibly can with the goal that I am delivering so much information to an author. Sometimes it can be daunting, and I know that. Um, but once they've had a chance to sort of process it, sit with it, break it apart, put it back together... I, I, what I'm hoping is that I'm giving enough information that the author will feel they have the tools they need to really tackle revision and figure out the best next steps for that project. Do you like your clients to have critique groups and beta readers in addition to working mm. with you? Uh, is there such a thing as too many cooks? Yeah, yeah, Jen, I think there is. You know, the first part of that question, I thought you were going to say, do you like your clients? <laughs> 
<laughs> and yes, I generally do. Um, but, you know, yeah, I am a big proponent of critique groups, but I'm a bigger proponent of helpful critique groups. Um, there are the kinds of critique groups where um, it's sort of a coffee clutch that can be just very supportive but not necessarily what an author needs to deepen their craft and really deepen their writing. This is something that authors have to kind of come to recognize with their own needs and with each project. Sometimes their needs will change from from one book to the next. But I do believe in critique groups. I think they can be extremely valuable, extremely helpful. Uh, Beta readers, too. I, I am not of a position, however to encourage authors to submit their first drafts for critique. Mm. Um, I And I talk a lot about this in workshops where to me, that first draft is a really precious time for the author and the work. They're still trying to figure out what the heck is this about. Sometimes that's too soon to start getting lots of feedback. Because authors tend to be like, oh, I'll try that. Oh, I'll try that. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds smart. And it it can reach a point where there's so much feedback that the author is losing their voice and their perspective and their story before they've even nailed down what that story is. So I think uh, I I tend to encourage authors, if they can, to uh, write a first draft put it away for a little while, and I mean like months if they can find that time, come back to it, rework it, critique it, uh, have some readers read it if they want to. Um, And then again, like we talked about before, it depends on if they're going to come to me or not or someone like me. Um, It's not essential that Anybody has to work with a consulting editor, but sometimes when you, when an author tends to feel like they just don't know which way to go, or they haven't been getting, actually, I'll, I'll rephrase that. They've been getting um, feedback that they don't know quite how to process, or they're getting sort mm-hmm. of a consistent, well, I'm not... Um, uh, feeling your main character, or I'm just not as compelled by the action as I'd like to be. If they keep hearing these things over and over again, that's when sometimes um, I'm brought in to try to add perspective to what those critiques mean and how to answer those. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the revision process mm-hmm. in general. I think many newer writers just have no idea how much revision is required to produce. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I have taught week long workshops just on revision and revision tools. Um, It is, it is such a critical part of the writing and creative process. And you're right, Jen, revision requires a lot of work and a lot of time. And I I think I'm, I like to encourage people to break their work apart, to look at it in pieces. For example, let's look at just your main character and create a chart even of everything the main character does, everything the main character says. Just let's look at the threads of the main character. Then you go back and maybe you look at all the action in the story. 
Look at it scene by scene. Look at it chapter by chapter. You know, this breaking apart a manuscript and putting it back together um, is a critical part of the revision process. And it's not linear. It's not going from page one all the way to the end and just doing little sort of pretty fixes. Um, it's really right. breaking it down, asking questions of the story itself, asking questions of the characters. Um, I use a lot of tools with authors, like a character interview worksheet uh, that can be very, very helpful in helping authors nail down who their characters really are, what they want, what they need, um, who they are, and that kind of thing. I, I work with scene uh, purpose sheets, trying to really help an author look at their work scene by scene to figure out what what is this scene about and is it actually serving my story, those kinds of things. So revision... You're making there you want to take Come, we'll have fun. <laughs> um, it's a lot of work, to your point. But um, I, you know, most of the authors I work with, I have to say, most of them actually enjoy the revision process. And I think it's because once an author understands how to revise, um, then it becomes a fun challenge. I hope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have a week right. in this instance. We have about sure. fifteen minutes. So, what are what are some of the common problems mm-hmm. you see in early drafts, and how do you help authors? Sure, those um, I would say primarily the common problem, and I, I'm actually thinking of a manuscript I'm working on as we speak um, this week, where the character is not as defined as they should be. And by that, I mean the depth and breadth of a character is not coming out on the page. And the character Mm. feels a little too sort of surface, not emotional enough, not dramatic enough. uh, And it's not clear to me what the character really wants, what the character really needs. And I see that a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, where I will then tend to work with an author to really discuss that character, break that character out of the story altogether, just to think about the character. Again, using a character interview worksheet can be an extremely helpful tool to do this. But I think, and I think this is because I love character-driven stories, that that's Mm -hmm. what I respond to probably first and foremost is who is this character? And so uh, that's, that's something I see pretty consistently that authors need to probably always (laughs) do more work than they thought they had to, to nail down all the facets of who their characters are. Hmm. Do you recommend outlining Mm -hmm. a project like story arcs? So character arcs, even if the writer is a pantser? Yeah, I do. Um, in whatever way works for that author. I, I think if an author is a pantser and just is so appalled by the idea of doing a outline, um, then I think there are other ways to get around that. But, but using tools that actually help an author see their story Um And this is where I recommend, again, character interviews. I do, um, 
I recommend world building interviews where an author actually is interviewing the world in which this story is set. And, and as these interviews are conducted, um, they're writing things down. And often what will happen, and this is sort of the goal, is that characters, including the world, will start talking to the author. I feel this. I want that. Um, and uh, it may sound a little crazy uh, to family members, <laughs> but um, I really recommend it. You know, I think tools like this are helpful for authors to reference, um, even things like writing down what's the character's favorite food, what's the character's favorite color, etc. Knowing those elements of characters, I think, is really important to help inform how a story evolves and works. So I think um, also character purpose sheets can be really important. And these sometimes come after a first draft where I will encourage an author to actually note every single character that's in a story and write down their purpose. Mm -hmm. And I mean every cat, dog, human, monster, dragon, mm -hmm. you know, any walk-on character but to really fully understand why is that character in this story. So it's not technically outlining, but these are tools to help authors see their work in a more holistic way. Yeah, I will say I find sometimes, especially when people have written sprawling yes. sort of epic novels with a huge cast of characters, that multiple characters actually have the same purpose and could be one character. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I am often saying, well, combine those four characters and what would happen? I mean, they're you all know, delightful, but... Uh... Yes. <laughs> yes. But you're right. Characters do serve a purpose. Um, and if you have so many serving the same purpose, yes, I agree. There is a reason to combine them, condense them, figure out or make them different enough um, that they matter. But, um, you know, we're asking a lot of readers, particularly young readers, to keep track of everything, every name, every character, every setting, every action. So uh, to my mind, helping our readers really stay engaged in a story and not confused, there's a goal there in, yeah. in doing this work. Yeah. Do you have any revision tips for like line level editing? Ah, um, that's a trickier one. It's hard to sort of teach someone line editing, but I think there are a couple of things. I, you know, I see a lot a, I don't even know what to call it, but it's kind of a stylistic thing where you've got a lot of long sentences with lots of ands in them, A-N-D. <laughs> um, and I see it a lot where I ask an author, take a look at those, at your sentences and just look at how long they are, how many ands or buts you have in there. It's valuable for the sake of the rhythm of a manuscript. And here's where picture book authors are, are so keen and um, savvy to do this. But look where you can get rid of an and, for example, and make two short sentences out of one long sentence. Mm -hmm. that, that's the kind of thing to look for. Um, I also will suggest looking at adjectives. 
do you sometimes tend to describe something with three adjectives? And this is a pattern that a lot of us fall into Mm -hmm. where somebody smells like cinnamon cloves and grass. Um, (laughs) And, you know, there's something about the comfort of of three. um, And we could go on and on about that, but we won't. But um, I'll ask others, look at look at your adjectives. Can you use one adjective that's stronger than say two or three that might be weaker? And just, I'm always a big one for sort of streamlining and tightening sentences. So at that sentence level, I also recommend authors read their work aloud a lot Mm. and have their work read aloud to them so they can hear how the sentences sound, if words are being repeated, if information is being repeated, um, if there's lots and lots of echoes of stuff we already know, that kind of thing. So that that's what I start to do at the line level, among other things. Yeah, I can't stress enough how important it is to read books aloud. I read, yes, like when I'm editing my clients' books, I read them mm-hmm. aloud. Yeah, and- me too. <laughs> And even when they're novels, I read them aloud because I can literally, you know, if I can't say something in a comfortable way, then it isn't good. That's right. That's right. You know, it has to be able to be read aloud if it's a children's book, even if it Mm -hmm. is a middle grade novel. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So I think that's so important. And, you know, the author sometimes is so close to it. They can read it aloud without a problem. But then when they hear somebody else, you know, unable to parse the sentences, Yeah. Yeah. One author told me about a computer program that reads Word documents aloud, but without any intonation or inflection. So it all sounds like a robot like this. But the author and other authors have subsequently used this method. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of this program, but you could find it. but it's a great way to hear how names sound, if there's any sort of strange repetition uh, or just hiccups in, in the language. It's a great way. But yeah, having someone read it aloud to you uh, is, is really valuable. Or you can record it and then listen to it. And that's another way to hear your work. Yeah, it's really useful. I mean, I know that's a painful thing to listen to. but <laughs> It is. It is. Well, Jen, one of the most painful things is when I have suggested that authors, even of novels, hand write their manuscripts. Oof. And it's a toughie. And, but I, you know, I'll say to novelists, even if you just hand write a chapter or two, you can learn a lot about your own writing through handwriting. Uh, and it's also a more um, sort of sensory experience with the work, which I'm a big believer in, um, where you're sort of hearing the the literally the writing on the page, uh, you're reading it, you're you're sensing it in your head. But handwriting uh, the work can be very valuable in the revision stage um, is when I usually recommend it. And uh, so I, I dare people to try it just a little, <laughs> see what happens, see what happens, see the words you tend to use over and over and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I th- I'm sort of springing this on you. Uh-oh. You might not know off the top of your head, but yeah. do you have any uh, advice about other resources for revision that, you know, books that you should check yeah. out from the library or um, great websites? 
Yeah, I'll tell you. I know um, my buddy Harold Underdown has a lot of good revision resources on his website, which is underdown.org, also known as Harold. Well, I think he used to call it the Purple Crayon. Um, but um, he's got some great revision sort of sources. Um, Darcy Pattison has a revision method called the Shrunken Manuscript, mm. which is fascinating. Uh, it's a way of looking at the manuscript very visually, not so much for line-by-line -line content, but just to start to see where the action is, where the main character is, where the antagonist is, uh, in a very specific method that, that she employs uh, through her website. Um, so, uh, yeah, if well, I I'll think of more, I'll email you. Yeah, please do. <laughs> okay. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Great, great. So you were a longtime in-house editor and publisher, as we've yeah. said. You worked mm -hmm. with some of the very biggest names in Kidlet. Mm -hmm. So you had a kind of a real insider's view of Kidlet publishing for decades from multiple different angles. Yeah. How yes. would you say Kidlet <laughs> publishing has changed over the years, besides the fact that we have email now? <laughs> and the fact that we can do this uh, through the computer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a big question. And I know you get asked this question a lot, I'm sure, too. Um, but uh, gosh, how has it changed? Well, I guess we're more connected than ever before. And I have seen the upside of that, but also the downside um, mm. where uh, through the social network, we can stay connected, we can share resources, we can share the highs and the lows of this business. Um, at the same time, though, uh, we can also see everybody's dirty laundry. <laughs> and um, I, I'm aware of authors or illustrators kind of getting into it online when it comes to, well, what kind of advance did you get or what kind of deal did you get, which can get dangerous um, to compare like that. But I do think ultimately the conversations that we have all started to have, and I would say this is in the last several years, particularly about um, own voices, about just stories of interest to all sorts of readers at all mm. levels of all backgrounds, uh, authenticity in our stories, those kinds of things that we're really talking about and exploring, I think are more critical than ever. They've always been important, uh, but they're more critical than ever. And I'm, I think what I'm seeing is a publishing industry least in, for children, um, that is embracing this notion of, you know, we have a huge opportunity here to serve children of all, of all races, of all backgrounds, of all needs, of all interests, of all abilities. Um, mm -hmm. And so how do we do that together? How do we sort of serve children the best way we can? Um, and so... I don't know if that's a change so much as just a good evolution of this business over the years. Yeah. I mean, I do think that it is a change, you know, yeah, certainly it must be a change. I think that the, you know, we all want more diverse books and everything sure. and it's happening. Right. But sometimes publishing can be so 
unbelievably slow yes. and like glacial mm-hmm. that it's sometimes hard to see that it is happening. I think you're right. I think you're right, Jen. And those of us who are sort of in it every day, um, it's interesting. I, I'm so engaged in lots of different listservs and discussions and we need diverse books, et cetera, et cetera, that I keep thinking, well, everybody's sort of having these conversations and that's not necessarily the case. Um, so it, it, it's an evolution. It's happening. It's, yeah, it's slower than we would like. You know, in, in thinking about the slowness of this business, something else that I've been somewhat involved with is working with authors who are self-publishing or who are indie mm-hmm. publishing. Um, and the quality of those projects is getting better and better. The, pro- the quality of the publishing is getting better and better, or at least the projects I work on, because I insist on a level of professional professionalism. Um, but I think there is an interesting reason to self-publish and that it's adding an interesting part of this publishing conversation that we're all paying attention to. So Totally. So you have a great SCBWI article I read recently about the power of quiet books. I'm going to link to it. Thanks. But for listeners who might not have heard the term quiet books or might not quite get what that means, Mm. what does it mean when an editor or an agent calls about quiet and how can authors turn quietness to their advantage? Yeah, I love that, that question, Jen, um, because quiet, I think our first assumption when we get a letter that says your, your manuscript is lovely, but it's just too quiet. Quiet Mm -hmm. has taken on a reason for rejection sometimes from, from agents or editors. And I myself have been an editor who has turned things down for being too quiet. Um, This doesn't mean that a story about a girl and her dog can't be published. You know, it, it doesn't mean that every story has to have battles and dragons and fire <laughs> and mayhem. It doesn't have to be at that high, high level of drama. You can have a story about a girl and her dog. You can have a story about a family, uh, a school classroom. These are sometimes in and of themselves thought of as quiet topics or quiet things themes. Mm-hmm. However, my feeling is that when a book is called too quiet, it's because the emotionality in the story is not heightened enough. So it's not the drama that has to be heightened, it's the emotionality. And so I think a quiet book, again, I'll use the example of like a girl and her dog. Um, what is the emotional story there that's going to resonate with readers, that's going to make readers feel something very, very deeply. The more a story makes a reader feel something deeply, the less we're inclined to call it quiet uh, because Mm. we can't help it. We're so engaged, uh, whether it's through joy or sadness or fear or anger. We just, we need to feel deeply when we experience stories. And what I found is when a story is kind of being told at a level that doesn't go deeply into their character's emotions, then that story is not going to tap a reader's emotions. And Mm -hmm. so I think when we call it quiet, it's because we're just not feeling enough from that story. And the potential, I think, is generally there 
with revision to try to make the emotionality that much larger and louder, if you will, Mm. so that no one would dare call the book quiet. (laughs) They might call it thoughtful. (laughs) They might call it sensitive, but quiet in that, in that negative way. Um, I hope that explains. Well, maybe they would. They might call it luminous. Luminous, exactly, or moving, <laughs> or beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, a question that comes up again and again and again from authors uh-huh. is, "What is the difference besides age of the protagonist between middle grade and YA?" Ooh, that's a good question. If they have sometimes uh, a protagonist that's maybe on the dividing line between tween and teen, or they're their book deals with complex or difficult topics. Sometimes they don't know which way to go. Mm. And I feel like this is kind of one of those, like, I know it when I see it type deals. Yeah. yeah. How do you explain to an author how they can know it when they see it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And to your point, you know, age of main character always matters. Um, so that that's the starting place, I think. But then... And I, I look at this a lot in manuscripts I work on, of course. Um, I think it's not just what is happening to the main character that can kind of dictate whether we're in a middle grade setting or a YA setting. Um, and there are sort of differences, I think, in general of the kinds of things that can happen to, say, a 12-year-old character versus uh, a 16-year-old character. But it's not so much what's happening to them or around them, but it's how that character manages those things that's happening to them or around them that I think dictates whether a story falls solidly in middle grade or solidly in YA because it comes down to what are the emotions of the main character? What are the choices they're making? What is their worldview that informs the choices they're making? And Mm. a worldview of a 12-year-old is very different than a worldview of a 16-year-old, generally. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of what I look for beyond just the age of the character is I sort of ask questions like, is this character behaving the way I think they would um, at that age or appropriately emotionally at that age? You know, when I, when I think about middle grade and YA, I, I've come up with kind of a theory, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's mine, so I'm sticking with it, <laughs> um, that we tend, and not always, but I think, and and Jen, you correct me if if you think I'm wrong on this, actually. Um, Mm. Generally, middle grade novels still tend to be written in third person. And YA novels, a lot of them are in first person. Would would you sort Mm -hmm. of agree that that's... Yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's, it's not like a rule. Hard no, path. it's not it's a rule by any means. But <laughs> yeah, but part of my thinking on that is that when we're writing for middle grade, we're thinking about an audience who is potentially eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, up to 12-ish. Um, mm. And so when we think about how much of life have these kids lived or not lived yet, uh, what are the sort of um, factors and emotions that interest kids of that age when they're eight, nine, 10? 
it's very different from kids who are reading YA who may be 13, 14, 15 or older. And worldviews mm-hmm. are very different. World experiences are very different. These kids of different ages definitely have different capacities for emotion, for physicality, um, for dynamics with other people, for how they behave and how they make choices. And what I found is sometimes a third-person narration is more manageable for younger readers, um, where a younger reader may not be as equipped emotionally to stand in the shoes of a first-person I voice. I, uh-huh. Again, it's not a rule, I, but it's a theory. A theory. Um, you know. <laughs> mine <laughs> yeah. is, and mine kind of, I think my theory kind of goes hand in hand with that, which I'm sure I've said before on this podcast, but what the Say heck? it again. Which is, <laughs> I feel like in middle grade books, yeah. often the main character is trying to find their way, their place in their mm-hmm. family, their place in their friends mm-hmm. group. They're, you know, they're placed in school. They're trying to find a way into a group or place. Whereas YA books, they're trying to bust out of Mm. a group or place and Mm. find themselves. That's lovely. I mean, that's a much more succinct way of proposing this theory. (laughs) But I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, And uh, I think that's true. You know, I also have a theory that every single book ever written is always about finding home. And depending, and that definition of home is what changes from character to character and book to book. But I, I like your theory, and I do think our theories sort of go hand in hand as we think about again not just the age of the main character, but the emotional kind of psychic um, space that that character lives in and how they work their way through the world. That's different when your character's younger versus when your character's a little bit older. And and I think those are the things that authors need to kind of pay attention to as they're creating characters. So Emma, mm. guess what? Oh my god. We're out of time. This but is fast. I know. I could I could literally talk <laughs> all day. I want you to edit all of my Thank you, my friend. I, <laughs> I'm obsessed. Um however before we yes. cut this off I always ask all my guests the same question, which is, what are you obsessed with this week? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And while you're thinking of yours, I will tell you mine. Mine is not bookish at all. So my obsession this week is a show called Stay Here on Netflix. Okay. I devoured all the episodes at once (laughs) this week. It's about people who have vacation rentals in beautiful locations. So let's say Malibu or the wine country or the Hudson Valley. So on paper, these should be great moneymakers, these properties. But the reality is they're actually usually shabby houses. They're not putting their best feet forward in terms of marketing. So a designer and expert come in, they revamp the look of the place, and they also help them figure out what their unique selling proposition is and how they can take advantage of their assets and grow their potential audience. Mm. So this combines my love of like beautiful homes <laughs> with my love of marketing savvy. I was going to say, this is you being an agent. I know. It actually, <laughs> I think there's a lesson here for writers and other creatives. 
Um, you know, it's is. not good enough to have a great idea. You also have to know how to present it and what your audience wants. Absolutely. You can, you can't just throw a palm tree on there and think this is beautiful enough. You <laughs> call know? it a day. <laughs> call it a day. Um, That's so, great. That's yeah. It's great. great fun. It's stay here on Netflix. Highly Love recommend. It. Stay here. Okay. Emma, um, what is your obsession? What am I obsessed with this week? Well, the beach is one of them. I um, I realized this week, uh, you know, that I have not been to the beach enough this summer at all, um, and this has been my bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the beach. It's I find it restorative, restful. I can read a manuscript on the beach. Um, I actually live right now near the water. Uh, I'm in Rhode Island for the mm-hmm. next year or so, and I live near beaches. And this is just me sitting on my butt, not doing anything about it. So now I've become obsessed with getting myself butt out of chair and onto the beach, uh, <laughs> probably with a manuscript in tow. But, um, and I'm also... That's a good one. Yeah. I, I want to go to the beach. Well, thank uh, we you. Should, I should note that we're recording this before, right before Labor Day. Yes, so we are. Right. We actually play when it's cold, but... See ya. Trust me, it's 100 <laughs> degrees right now. It is. We, I definitely want to be on the beach. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Was there another obsession or is that it? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've started taking an art class. And this was to push myself creatively. I feel very creative most days in, in this work that I do. Not always, but most. Um, but I really wanted a new creative outlet. So I started taking a Friday afternoon art class locally with some lovely women, a great teacher. And now I'm so looking forward to every Friday afternoon. And it's really fun because I never know what I'm going to create onto a canvas and what colors I'm going to use. And it's actually become a, a little, a bit of an obsession. I kind of love it. painting? It like is painting. Oil? It's a watercolor class, but I decided with the teacher's blessing in the first class that watercolors are not for me. They're not my friend. Um, mm-hmm. I need, I don't want so much control over the paint. I want to be messier. So I'm using mm-hmm. acrylics and really playing with color and brush strokes. And it's just very freeing, which I didn't expect. So I'm loving it. Cool. So I should, I know, I know I'm, I'm still talking, even though I said we were out of time. Oops. Let's talk. So uh, I, uh, I had an amazing opportunity yesterday, which was that I went to Maurice Sendak's house. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, it's, you know, I've li- literally had a lifelong obsession yes. with Maurice Sendak. So yes. I was really, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually, I'm still processing it. That's fantastic. But something you just said reminded me of a fun fact, Ooh. which is that I saw Maurice Sendak's studio and his desk oh. and the person who was touring us around oh. and, you know, telling us all about all the different things in yeah. there, uh, pointed out the paints. Oh, which were straight up poster paints. Really? Oh, that's great. Yeah, like what you use when you're a kid, cheap, cheapo, Love it. bendito. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Take a lesson, um, so everybody. So Sendak <laughs> can use yeah. $3 kindergarten that's paint it. to make those beautiful books. That's, it. that's amazing. And, and actually a really important reminder. Um, hmm. Yeah. Just use the tools you've got. I buy acrylics at the dollar store, and they're just fine to just have fun. Just have fun. 
<laughs> we need to have more well, fun. Well, Emma, absolutely. <laughs> this has been a, such a delight and so much Thank fun. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. It's been great. And, um, I'll, I'll see you on the internet. Okay. See you all there. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much to my friend Emma Dryden for joining me today, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please do consider writing a review of it on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash literatycat. Throw in a buck and you just might win books. We are only able to exist because of patrons like you, so thank you. Emma is also doing one of the big-time revision workshops she discussed uh, in the podcast in spring at the Highlights Foundation. There will be links to that and to the other resources that Emma and I chatted about and a whole lot more in the show notes. Those are up on my website, jenniferloughrin.com slash literaticast. Thanks again for listening and uh, see you next time.